Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat this morning. And uh, as you find your seats, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Titus chapter 2 is where we'll be together in our time this morning, verses 7 through 15. Uh, our time together today is going to be a little bit brief, um, uh, shorter than it typically is. Now, most of us are coming back for family meeting later on um, tonight, and especially during the third service today. We've got to do some work to get this room turned around in preparation for that. So we're going to jump right into things today, verses 7 through 15. If you were not here last week, this morning is a part Two. Um, last week, we l- kicked off looking at the doctrine of relationships. As we studied the book of Titus for the last several weeks, we've seen a key theme repeated week in and week out, which is how as followers of Jesus, uh, as a healthy church, it's not enough for us just to be sound in our preaching. We have to be sound in living. It is all too easy for the, a church to preach a good message from the front uh, one day a week, but without the life-giving blood of the gospel being lived out day in and day out every Every single day in service to Jesus Christ, then we may actually reveal that we don't have the true gospel. If our preaching does not lead to practice, if our belief doesn't lead to behavior, if the message that we preach on Sunday isn't being lived out throughout the course of a week, not just for me, but of every single follower of Jesus Christ within the body, if we have gospel doctrine but no gospel culture, we don't have the gospel at all. And so we saw last week that when we think about doctrine, we unfortunately tend to think only in terms of concepts. We, we think about uh, truth that is just kind of regurgitated from one person to the next, just sort of the rote memory of cold facts. And, and so we saw last week that we tend to focus doctrine in terms of worship or fellowship or discipleship, but very seldom do we think about doctrine in terms of relationship. So last week we saw um, how God in his good in perfect design has ordained from eternity past uh, that men and women fulfill these complementary corresponding roles both within the church and within the home. And when we do this, we practice the gospel. We put the message of the gospel on visible display through the way that men and women relate to one another within the body of Christ. And today, what we're gonna see as we continue on in chapter two is how the gospel shapes our work and how the gospel shapes our witness. So again, last week we saw how it shapes the relationships of men and women. Today, we're going to see how the gospel shapes our witness to the world and in the church and how the gospel shakes uh, our work, even in the workplace and in our vocations. If you're following along in your notes this morning, we'll see in Titus 2, 7 through 15, that the gospel propels us to faithful service in our mission and our vocation. It propels us to faithful service both in our mission, the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, and in our vocation, the work that the Lord has given us to do in our day-to-day. And it happens as the gospel takes root in our lives and shapes our whole being for the glory of God. So from Titus chapter 2, we're going to read together here, uh, starting with verses 7 through 10, just picking up where we left off last week. Verse 7, Paul is now addressing Titus directly. He's addressed uh, older men, older women within the congregation, younger men, younger women within the congregation. Now he's speaking to Titus directly as the leader. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, so let's pause here for just a second because we see it repeated again as we have all throughout Titus. It's not just his teaching that he wants him to pay attention to. It's also how he lives his life. It's doctrine leading to devotion. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So once again, we see doctrine, not in terms of just some vague uh, uh, ethereal concept, just some heavenly thinking, but we see doctrine in terms of real life, day to day, practical relationships. So we see first this morning from verses seven and eight, sound doctrine for our witness. So, so, so how does doctrine actually lead to our witness in the church and in the world? Here's what Paul lays out for Titus. Again, he's already addressed older men and women. He's addressed younger men and women. Now he's addressing Titus directly in regards to his work as a pastor. Now, if we followed this theme again closely over the last several weeks, where uh, verse, chapter one, verse one, we saw it right away, that the gospel is truth that accords with godliness. It's truth that leads to godliness. It's truth that leads to living. We saw chapter two, verse one, he was instructed, Titus was by Paul to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So teach in such a way that our very actions, our very lives will be affirming evidence of the doctrine that you preach. And we see it repeated again here, chapter two, verse seven, be a model, be an example of good works. So it's Paul just stressing the same message over and over again to Titus. Don't just preach these things, live these things. So we saw last week what Paul was to, or what Titus was to teach to the men and women in the church, to the older men. He was to preach for them to be sober-minded, to be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. His message for the older women was to be reverent in their behavior, not enslaved to wine, not slanderers, teaching what is good. His instruction to younger men and younger women was to be self-controlled and pure. And so in the same way that Titus is exhorting men and women within the body to live their lives in step with the word, now Paul is instructing Titus to do the same. Hey, these things that you are preaching to everyone else, make sure you're being a good model of them. And so really, this is one of those things that puts the onus really on someone like me as a pastor, our pastors and elders within the church. It's, it's not enough for us to be, to be good teachers. It's not enough for us to, to preach sound doctrine. We have to be practicing sound doctrine. We have to live these things out. And Paul exhorts Titus, be a good example be a model of these things. You know, I'll be the first in line as, as someone who uh, does this regularly, you know, so, so three times this morning, I'll get up here and I'll, I'll preach this message and um, I'll be the first person to tell you um, that the preaching is the easy part. Okay, that, that's, that's the easy part. It definitely wears me out. Like Monday mornings, I'm gonna, yeah, tomorrow morning, I'm gonna need the extra cup of coffee. I'm gonna feel like I got hit by a, a bus. Uh, preaching a sermon has the rough equivalent on your body as running a 10K, all right? So, so I'm gonna feel it tomorrow, but I promise you, it's not the preaching that's the hard part. It's the living that gets me in trouble. It's, it's walking out of here during the course of the week. And this is true for all of us as followers of Jesus. Like we live, it's, it's such a weird thing that we've done, I think, especially in the last hundred years. We equate sitting in a service and being challenged by the word as if that translates to change in our lives. So like we kind of, it's like we, you come, you know, just you, you maybe go work out once a week or something. Like we, we kind of see this as our workout, like, man, that, that really kicked my tail. But then nothing changes the rest of the week. And so we, we like that, you know, just kind of the feeling of conviction, the feeling of, man, that was, that was solid, that was good. But then we equate that feeling of conviction with the reality of repentance and change in our life. And Paul's showing Titus, that is not the case. It's not enough just to preach it. It's not enough just to hear it. James lays this out so clearly for us. Faith without works is what? It's dead. Our preaching has to lead to change. Our hearing has to lead to change. Or I haven't really preached and we haven't really heard. 
So three marks for his teaching that Paul says Titus should have. The first is to show integrity. He says, let your teaching be marked by integrity. This could literally translate incorruption. Let your teaching be incorruptible, meaning that it's honest and it's upright. And so the easiest way, again, as we saw just a moment ago, to contradict teaching uh, and sound doctrine is just to live contrary to what is actually taught. But, but it's a message that should be marked by uprightness. It's a message that should be marked by integrity. Um, again, I've, I've peeled back the curtain for you a few times the last few weeks. I'm going to do it again this morning. This happens a whole lot more than you think in our culture today, but uh, sermon plagiarism is like a real thing. It's, it's a problem. It's a message that might be good, but it lacks integrity because instead of someone doing the work of digging into God's word and giving a fresh word for that congregation, it's a lot easier to go download something off the internet than some popular guy has done and regurgitate it to people. And by the way, not tell them that you're doing it. I mean, I hate to spoil it for, for maybe some of our favorite Bible teachers, but like, man, like go Google their stuff. And you'll, you might learn very, very quickly, hey, this is actually being hawked from someone else. And so it just, it totally lacks integrity. It's not, listen, there's nothing new under the sun, okay? So it's, it's not that we don't learn things from others. We don't glean things from others. But, but Paul shows Titus here, this message should be marked by integrity. It should be upright. It should be genuine. It should be honest. He goes on to say that his message should be marked by dignity. The, the usage of this word, the way it's used in the Greek, it really indicates more of a seriousness, so let your message be marked by seriousness. So listen, it, it's not that humor uh, never has a place in, in preaching. As a matter of fact, I'd make the argument that preaching with no humor is, is probably pretty bad preaching. I mean, just, just read the words of Jesus, read the words of Paul, read the words of the prophets. Then brothers had jokes, okay? Like they, they said some funny things, that they said some funny things. And so it's not that there's no place for it ever, but that should never be the focal point. If we employ humor, if we, we employ something kind of silly as a device, it always needs to be to drive forward the more serious truth of the doctrine of God's word. It's pointed this way, let it be marked by dignity. I think this is one of the tragedies of, mar of modern preaching is that it tends to be marked more by silliness than seriousness. Where it, it's the silliness, it's, it's the joking, it's the storytelling, that becomes the focal point and it distracts from Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon said this nearly two centuries ago, I wonder what he would have to say today. He said, if you have to give a carnival to keep people or get people to come to church, then you will have to keep giving carnivals to keep them coming back. You know, there's uh, two plumb lines that we've held to as a church for really since our inception several years ago. I don't know who to attribute these sources to. I've tried to look this up and there's about two dozen people taking credit for both of these. Just know that these did not originate from us, but there's two plumb lines that we've really held to um, the last several years that have served us well. The first one is this, what we win them with is what we win them to. What we win people with is what we win people to. Which means if, if we win people with silliness versus seriousness, then we'll have to keep them with silliness. Like if you win people with entertainment, then you have to keep them with entertainment. And we shouldn't be surprised when they just leave or don't come back because they found better entertainment. But we looked at this uh, a few months ago, whenever we talked about, you know, again, this has been a lot of the approach of the modern church, but the end of the day is we will never outdo Disney. And we need to go ahead and accept that. The purpose of the church is not to entertain, it, it's to equip. It's not that our teaching shouldn't be engaging. It's not that it shouldn't be winsome. It's not that it shouldn't draw us in. But ultimately, the call of pastors and elders in the body of Christ, per Paul's words in Ephesians, it's not to entertain, it's to equip. 
And so this is why it's so important that our teaching primarily be marked with dignity. It be marked with integrity. It be serious. It be drawing us into a deeper understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. Paul's exhortations to Titus and Timothy were not to preach stories. It was not to preach silliness. It wasn't even to preach quotes and statements from other godly people. His word and exhortation to them was to preach the word of God. Now, uh, the last few years, I've had the opportunity to serve on a team uh, through the, the South Carolina Baptist Convention, just assessing church planters. And, and part of what I assess is the preaching. And, and the three-word piece of feedback that I give most regularly to people to, who, are, who are just kind of starting to cut their teeth in preaching, the three simple words I leave most of them with is this, preach the word. How could my sermon have been better? It's pretty simple, preach the word. And so some, you know, will kind of use the Bible as like a diving board, like they'll start there, but never really come back to it. You know, or, or we might touch base on it. We might get up you know, off the ground and, and maybe make reference to it or we might maybe land on it at the end. Listen, this is what Paul means by preaching the word. It means we launch from scripture, we set our cruising altitude in scripture and we land in scripture. It's preach the word. It's not my word that's going to save, it's the word of God that's going to save. And that's why we just as a church, we commit to what we call uh, expositional preaching. It's just the word by word, line by line, verse by verse preaching. I'm a firm believer if we commit to this, we'll never run out of sermon content because God's word is true and it's good for all eternity, for all time. And if we commit ourselves to the simple unfolding of his word, he will always have a word for his people. Second plumb line that we hold on to very closely as a church is that the gospel is offensive so nothing else should be. What we win them with is what we win them to, and the gospel is offensive, so nothing else should be. The third mark that Paul shows Titus his teaching should have is sound speech that cannot be condemned. So it should be marked by integrity, it should be marked by dignity, and it should be sound speech that cannot be condemned. And that's why we say the gospel, let the gospel be what offends. Listen, this is, I think, a mistake that we make in a lot of our modern context. This is particularly indicated by all these online kind of freelance apostle internet bloggers who have taken it upon themselves to police everybody's theology on planet Earth apart from the local church. That's not a biblical office, by the way. It's, 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 this under, it's, it's, it's kind of this, this posture and this mentality. Well, I'm here to guard truth, to defend truth, and to preserve truth. And yes and amen, as followers of Jesus, we are called to preserve truth. But you know what we are never called to do is be a jerk about it. And, and sometimes the reason why we lose the world is not because of the truth that we're preaching. It's because of the tone of our voices. We, we believe that in our defense of scripture that, that somehow qualifies us and that somehow enables us to be condescending to people, to be insulting to people, to, to be condemning of others. If our pursuit of defending the truth is leading us to demean others, then we've fallen into sin. And so Paul exhorts Titus here, he says, let your speech be so sound that it can't be condemned. Let the gospel be what offends. Listen and understand the gospel is offensive. Truth by its very nature and definition divides because truth is, is dividing between what is right and what is wrong. And in case you haven't noticed, we don't live in a culture where people like to be told that they're wrong. 
This has kind of been uh, a unique dynamic that's unfolded. You know, the la for a couple of decades, we had you know, what was being referred to as postmodernism, and, and you heard the language of post-truth being thrown around, and so you heard people use statements like, hey, I'm just committed to my truth or this truth, and I've got my truth, and you can kind of find your truth, and, and we've kind of moved on from that, but this is, this is the, the foundation that was laid, and this is where we are now. We're now in this really weird space over the last four or five years where there still is truth, but truth is whatever affirms my version of the story. And so again, it's, if, if you're more on the conservative side of things, truth is whatever I agree with. If you're more on the liberal side of things, truth is whatever I agree with. And what our, what our news outlets do is we now live in this world where people can get things on video, which happens a lot. We can watch something happen. And then the work even of our news media is to tell you that what you're watching isn't what really happened. And so truth isn't actually what happened. Truth is whatever affirms my version of the story. That's not truth. That's narcissism. And so we have to have speech that's, that's marked. It's, it needs to be sound. Let, let there be nothing that we say that would give our enemies and those who oppose us any reason to contradict us. We should be able to live with people walking away from the church saying, I, I didn't agree with that message. That's going to happen. We should be able to live with that. What should really frustrate us is that people walk away saying, that was a group of unloving people. The gospel is offensive. Nothing else should be. Let the gospel be what cuts. Let the gospel be what wounds. Let the gospel be what divides and offends. And then we do everything within our power is the body of Christ. Everything within our power is the body of Christ to make sure anyone that we interact with cannot walk away and say anything other than those people really loved me. I disagree with, those message, with the message, but those people really love me. We can live with this. And so we want our speech to be marked uh, with godliness. Verses 9 and 10. Uh, a little bit, again, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, a bit of a, a more of a controversial passage through church history. And so we're just going to break this down a little bit together. It says, verse 9, bond servants, or more literal translation from the Greek doulos, slaves. So he's speaking here to slaves in this context. He says, bond servants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So we see, have seen sound doctrine for our witness. Second, this morning, we see sound doctrine for our work. Now, again, it's, it's a bit of a controversial passage because this is being written instruction in this cultural context for slaves and their masters. And it leaves us maybe asking the question, well, why didn't Paul just condemn slavery? Why does he give instruction for how slaves are to behave under the authority of their masters versus just condemning slavery outright? And this is where we need to understand just a couple things about the first century context in which these things were written. Um, first, th this word bond servants or slaves, it did include those who had been subjected to forced labor, but it also included people who had volunteered for this type of service. In the Roman Empire at this uh, time, there were about 50 million people who had the designation of slave, but it wasn't just forced labor. Sometimes they were teachers, sometimes they were doctors, Sometimes they were skilled tradesmen. Um, and this is really what drove forward the economy, for better or for worse, of the Roman Empire. And at the end of the day, it ended up being part of what broke the back of the Roman Empire when the, when the slaves uh, began to revolt against the power and the authority of Rome. So, so just contextually here, understand like that, that that word slave, it includes two different types of groups. It did include some who were in forced labor, but also included some who had volunteered for service. But then more than that, this is where we, saw, we did the same thing last week. This is where you need your whole Bible to do theology. 
Because unfortunately, the way this verse was used through, by slave traders, particularly in our historical context over the last uh, a few centuries back, was, was they would take verses like this from the Bible and they would use this to show slaves that they had to stay under their authority. And so they would cut out other verses of the Bible. You can go research this, the slave Bible that only included about a dozen chapters of the regular Bible. It, it, it cut out as basically a Thomas Jefferson approach to scripture, just cut out the parts we don't like. Cut out anything that might give slaves the impression that they were willing to go free. But if you look at the whole context of scripture, it is abundantly clear that the Lord is vehemently opposed to those who force others into labor. For those who steal other human beings and force them into labor. Even the apostle Paul says this. So again, we go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And here Paul explicitly condemns enslavement. Or, or the practice of stealing others and forcing them into work. So this has been addressed at about the same time that the book of, of Titus was written. So 1 Timothy 8, or excuse me, 1, verses 8 through 11. Apostle Paul writes here to Timothy, very similar letter that he's writing to Titus. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, there it is, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so he's saying here, like to enslave others, to force them into labor, that contradicts sound doctrine, that is unsound doctrine. And so just explicitly condemning it here in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives instruction again for the relationship between slaves and masters. And so he's talked with slaves about the importance of, of respect and their demeanor, but then he even gives instruction to masters that, that flies right in the face of what we saw happen throughout history in the slave trade. Masters do the same to them as in showing them respect and stop your threatening. Remember, we, we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that the type of authority that the Lord entrusts to men, it's not a domineering authoritarianism. It, it is an authority that insists on serving. It's an authority that insists on humbling ourselves in the service of others. So he says, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And so even in this first century context, this is what Paul was trying to show to masters of slaves. He said, listen, you might be their master, but the Lord is your master and their master. The two of you have the same master. This is why, again, out of the slave Bible was cut out passages uh, like Galatians chapter three, which tells us that in Christ Jesus, there is no longer slave nor free. These were also the words of Paul. Those distinctions have been broken down by the gospel. It's one of the most tragically neglected books in the entire New Testament, the short letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. And Philemon is a letter that's written about Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. And he's writing to Philemon and he's, he's just imploring him to please receive Onesimus back as a brother in the Lord. So again, when we use our whole Bible, the New Testament outright condemns the practice of buying and selling human beings and forcing them into labor. It's not, it's not confusing. There's, there's still kind of this rewriting of history right now where we want to we whitewash the past and make it seem like, well, all those who were enslaving others, they were just kind of a product of their time. Study church history. There were faithful prophetic voices in every century that were calling out the sin and injustice. And it was the foundational principles that we find in the New Testament that were instrumental in writing that wrong. It's to our shame as a nation that it took us so long to get it right, but at the end of the day, it was the word of God that was the foundational driving point to break down that divide. 
In Christ, there's no longer slave nor free. That division has been broken down. So again, why did Paul not address that here? Quick recap. Again, uh, slave does not always refer to those in forced labor, so it is possible that Paul here is only addressing those who had volunteered for this service. Again, uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy was written about the same time as Titus, so we could safely assume that Titus was aware uh, of those words that Paul had written to Timothy. Uh, But third, even among the slave-master relationships with Christians, there was to be a mutual respect between both parties as brothers and sisters in Christ that displayed the gospel and the glory of God. He said, well, what, is, what does that have to do with, with us today? Because again, we, we don't have, at least in our cultural context right now, this, you know, the, the, the same slavery that existed a couple hundred years ago. Well, the, the principles that Paul lays down for us today apply very easily to any type of employer-employee relationship. There's to be a mutual respect that exists between both parties. So Paul says to Titus, he says, teach slaves to be submissive to their masters in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good faith. Apparently what had happened in this culture is even among brothers and sisters in Christ who were in these master-slave type relationships is there were some slaves who were taking advantage of the kindness of their masters. They saw them and said, hey, you're a brother in Christ. And even if they had volunteered to serve them and to work for them, they were taking advantage of that kindness. Hey, because you're a brother in the Lord, like, I'm just not going to do my job. And you can't hold me accountable for it. Where it's all is grace, all is good. We're together in this. And so Paul is exhorting Titus to address this. And so again, these principles that Paul lays out for bond servants here apply to all of us in our own fields of work. I want you to hear this this morning. Regardless of what your job is, Christians, we should be the very best employees on planet earth. We should be the best employees on planet Earth. And employers, you should be the best employers on planet Earth. People should want to work for you and, and enjoy working for you, have great joy working for you because you follow Jesus Christ. And, and listen, even if you've got a job right now, man, you can't stand your boss. I mean, like you are already, like you're dreading tomorrow morning. You might even dreading today because he's going to bug you on the weekend. Like you're already dreading it. You're already feeling it. We should be the best employees on the face of the earth. Um, When Emily and I first got married in 2010, I was wrapping up seminary and we had just moved to the Charlotte area and um, I was seeking out different ministry positions. I was serving a volunteer position in youth ministry, but we were married, had bills to pay. And so I found a full-time job uh, working retail management and I was doing shipping uh, shipping and shipment for um, a major retailer. And so it was a, a job that I absolutely hated. Um, not a job that I wanted, not what I wanted to be doing long-term, wasn't enjoying it. Um, I'm a morning person, but you know, I had to be there most mornings around 3.30, 4 o'clock and we would receive trucks and we would unload them and this would go on, you know, till noon, one o'clock in the afternoon. And, 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 and this went on, you know, for about a year and I was frustrated by it. I was like, Lord, you know, why are more doors not opening? And I mean, I'm trying to finish up seminary. I just want to focus. It was, Lord, I just, just want to be serving your church. I just want to be serving full-time in ministry. And, and so I had lunch one day uh, with a, an older spiritual father who was a part of the church that we were in. And, and so I was sharing my frustrations with him. I was like, man, I'm gone to seminary and I've already done a few years of internships. And I'm really looking to, to break in and find my first full-time position. And, and I've got this job and I can't stand it. And I don't know why the Lord has me here. And he went on to tell me this story. He said, you know, when, when I first became a believer, He was working for a major corporation as well. And he said, what I would do is, he said, I I just, same thing, just kind of wanted to follow the Lord with my whole heart. And so I would go to work, but instead of doing my job, I, I thought it was my primary responsibility to evangelize the whole workplace. Like that was the way I was serving the Lord was I would show up and I would just go from cubicle to cubicle, like office to office, desk to desk, just sharing the gospel with people. 
And he said, I really thought like that I was doing the will of God by doing this. And it was a job I didn't really want to be in. He said, but I had a mentor come alongside me and take me to lunch one day and say, hey, listen, you know what your number one role is here? It's, it's not evangelizing from desk to desk. Your number one role here is to turn a good profit for this employer. And he thought about it for a second. He was like, well, I feel like as a follower of Jesus, my number one role is to share the gospel with others. And he said, yes, that's true. He said, but nobody's going to want to hear the gospel that you're sharing if you're constantly flaking out on your job. And so, so Christians, man, we should be the best employees on planet Earth. We should respect our employers. We, we should want to fulfill their purposes and the initiatives that they've given us to do. We should be on time. We should not be the people who are constantly finding a reason to leave early. We should work hard while we're there. We shouldn't steal things. We shouldn't steal time. It's our responsibility. And in doing this, we display the message of the gospel. In doing this, we, we display the message of the gospel. No one is going to want to hear about the Jesus that we worship if we're doing a terrible job. It's probably one of the most underrated apologetics for the Christian faith. Try hard at work. Give your very, very best, even if it's a job you can't stand. Because what happened in my instance is, you know, I go back to work and I started giving a little bit more effort. I said, hey, Lord, while I'm here, at first I had to, to deal with that as sin in my heart. Is just confess that like, Lord, I've had a pretty terrible attitude about this. And, and I've not sought this as an opportunity for your glory. I've just kind of seen this as a stepping stone to where it is that you're leading me next. And so I started trying a little bit more at this job I couldn't stand. And guess what? People started asking me why. And when that happened, guess what got to happen? Shared the gospel. And they were actually interested in hearing it. We should be good coworkers. We should be good friends to the people that we work with. We should be the hardest working people in the places where we work. And in doing this, we display the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. It's the opportunity for us to give testimony to the work that the Lord's done within us. So in our witness, in the way that we share the gospel, in our work, as we go to work in the day-to-day, -day, and as we give our best to the glory of God, we earn the opportunity to communicate the goodness of who Jesus is and what it is that he's done for us. So I want to, uh, excuse me, let, let's read this here. This is Colossians 3, because I want to sign off on that little section here with, with this verse. This is our foundational reminder, Colossians 3, whatever you do, if you, you do an intensive study of the word whatever in the Greek, it turns out it means whatever. As in anything you do, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. So in just the same way, Paul had instructed these masters. He said, listen, you may be their master, but the Lord is your master. We remember, you don't primarily work for your employer, employer you work for the Lord. He's our ultimate master. He's our ultimate authority. He's the one that we're ultimately going to report to on the last day, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Everything that we do, we do it all for the glory of God as we display this. And so this is what we've seen the last few weeks in our relationships, men and women with one another, our relationships in the way that we witness to others and the way we share the gospel to others, our relationships with others in the workplace and how we devote ourselves to the workplace. That is the practice of doctrine. That that's, that's the amplification of, of these, these big, vague, ethereal, heavenly concepts that we wonder, what does this have to do with me? It all has real world application. 
And so what we want to do is we, we close out this doctrine of relationships from the last couple of weeks, just really quickly here from verses 11 through 15. We're going to ask five questions for evaluating our orthopraxy. Now, time out here. Um, that's just kind of a fancy word, again, that relates to our practice. So again, if orthodoxy has to do with sound teaching, which is what we tend to focus on in the church, orthopraxy has to do with sound living. So not just are we teaching soundly, are we believing soundly, are we living out the things that we teach and we believe soundly? Is my life sound doctrine? Is essentially what we're asking here in the next few moments. Let's read verses 11 through 15. We're going to walk through these questions uh, one at a time. So Paul says to Titus here, for the grace of God has appeared. So again, he's walked through instruction for older men, older women, younger women, younger men, instructions for Titus as a pastor and his leadership in the church, instructions for how we relate to those that we work for and work with and why for. So, so here's why all of that's important. Men and women together and for your employer and your witness in the church and the world. Here's why all of that is important. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, he says to Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So why all of this instruction for men and women? Why all of the instruction for employees and employers? Why all of the instruction for Titus, his witness in the church, in the world? Because the grace of God has appeared. And the way that we prove it has appeared is not just through what we believe in our heads, believe in our hearts, but how we're living. How's this being fleshed out in our lives? So here's, here's just five, for all of us, these are five questions for evaluating whether or not our lives, our individual lives, are sound doctrine. So first question is this, have I been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? This is back in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So listen, if, if you don't have this, nothing else matters. If you don't have this, if you don't have that foundation, if, if we do not have Christ, if Christ does not have us, listen, you can modify your behavior for a season, but the gospel is not just a message about modifying our behavior. It's a message about transforming our hearts from the inside out. Have you been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ? Have you not just felt conviction or remorse for your sins? Have you repented of your sins? Have you renounced your sin? Have you turned your back on your sin? Have you run from your sin to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? Have you renounced any ability in and of yourself to save yourself? Or are you still trusting in your religious works? Are you trusting in your church attendance today to be what saves you on the last day? Because it won't. It's only the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ. Have you renounced your sin? Have you turned from your sin, repented of your sin? Have you called on the perfect name of Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in his perfect life, death, and resurrection? Have you been saved? It starts with this foundation. If you don't have this, nothing else matters. It does not matter how much doctrine you know in your heads if you don't believe it in your hearts. It will have no power to transform the way we live our lives. Second question, 
Am I actively fighting sin against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit? Again, verse 12 training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Are you actively fighting against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit? Again, listen, it's, it's not a battle that we fight on our own. That's why we sang those words earlier. Lord, I need you. Can't do this on my own. We're not just going to will our way through this. And when you, you sit, if you're really wrestling with the question this morning, man, am I, am I truly in Christ? Here, here's one of, I think, the most clarifying questions you can ask yourself. Are you actively waging war against your sinful desires? Or are you passively giving yourself over to them? Paul writes through, throughout his letters, listen, if you live, this is in the book of Romans, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the, the famous words of the great Puritan writer, John Owen, be busy killing sin or it will be busy killing you. Are you actively waging war against the sinful desires of your flesh, the sinful desires of your heart, or are you passively giving yourself over to them? Third question, am I living in eager anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ? Am I living in eager anticipation of the return of Christ? This is verse 13. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What do you feel when you think about the return of Christ, this imminent return of Christ, this at any moment return of Jesus Christ? What does that make you feel? Are you full of faith or are you full of fear? Because listen, if you are in Christ, there is absolutely no reason to be afraid of this day. As a matter of fact, we are to live in anticipation of this day. Like when you think of the return of Jesus, do you, do you think about a bride that's with eager anticipation getting ready to meet her groom? Or do you think about a convict who's waiting to fall under arrest? Are you waiting? Are you longing for the return of Jesus? How often do you pray for this? And do you ask him, Lord, come, come Lord Jesus. Because if we're in Christ, this is what we should be longing for. We should anticipate this. We should be afraid of this. That this is not something to be feared. This is something to be celebrated. Christ, who has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave, he's going to bring an end to it all. We're going to be united with him. He, he's going to restore the heavens and the, the, the new, make a new heaven and new earth here. And we will live with him forever and reign with him forever. There'll be no more sickness, no more death, no more fear. All of it's gone. Do you long for this day or do you fear this day? Because this can be evidence of whether or not we've truly come to know him. Fourth question, has my desire for sin been replaced by zeal for good works? Is a good clarifying question. Do you begrudgingly do the will of God or do you delight to do the will of God? Are you eager to please him? Do, do we receive the, the commandments of his word? Does, uh, does our heart harden up against these things? Do we put up a wall? Do we joyfully obey what he's shown us? Because he has in his goodness shown us what it means to live in fellowship with him, in harmony with him. We thank him for his law. We thank him for his words because it's shown us clearly the boundaries that he's called us to live within as his children. Has your desire for sin, has this been replaced with the zeal for good works? This is one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible never just tells us to stop doing something. It always tells us to stop and then it gives us something new to do. And this is the promise and what we're told from Ephesians 2.10, that we are saved by grace through faith, but we are his workmanship. And we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
Do you delight to do the good works that the word of God commands us to do? Has that replaced your desire for the sinful things of this word? And the last question, I think important for us again, am I willing to receive necessary challenge and correction from the word of God? Paul instructs Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is such an important clarifying question, I think, in the midst of our cultural moment, because this is where we're at even in the church today. Is is I fear that out of fear, we have lost the offense of the gospel. We've lost the offense of the gospel. We will teach the Bible. We will preach truth. We will commit to ideas. We, we will commit to values. We will, we will do that so long as it doesn't become uncomfortable. And that's no gospel at all. We will go up to a point, the, the moment that it might be deemed offensive, the moment that, that it might be, be deemed as, as challenging, the moment that it might not be well received by an unbelieving world or even by an unbelieving church, we'll go all the way up to the point that we're about to feel uncomfortable and that's where we stop. And listen, that is not good news. It was uh, the late, great Adrian Rogers who once said that it is better to be divided by truth than united in error. It is better to first preach the truth that hurts and then heals than to preach falsehood that comforts and then kills. Will we commit to the offense of the gospel? Will we commit to letting the word of God do its wonderful wounding in our hearts? Simple question for us this morning. When the truth of God's word bumps up against the sinful desires of your flesh, who wins? Do we humbly submit ourselves to the authority of God's word or do we double down on our sin? Church, it's not enough for us to know it in our heads got to believe it in our hearts, got to live it with our hands. It's not enough to preach sound doctrine from the front. We have to live it out in every nuance of every interaction as a body of believers every single day. And by doing this, we display the good doctrine of who God is. We display the doctrine of the gospel. We display this truth to the world. So just bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning. Maybe just take a moment to, to look at those questions in, in your message notes here. Have you been saved by grace through faith in Jesus? Are you actively fighting against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you living in eager anticipation of the return of Christ? Has your desire for sin been replaced by zeal for good works? Are you willing to receive necessary challenge and correction from the word of God? Are we living doctrinally sound lives? Are we displaying sound doctrine in our interactions with one another in the way that we carry ourselves at work, in the way that we minister to one another within the body of Christ? And so as we prepare to come to the table this morning for the Lord's Supper, we just wanna lay before him, confess to him any sin, any inconsistency that is in our heart. What is in your life right now that is not of Christ? What is out of step with his word? What is not doctrinally sound? What desires of your flesh are you giving into? What attitudes, what actions, what behaviors, what habits? So 
lay that at the feet of Jesus. So Father, we come to you this morning confessing our sin, trusting the promise of your word that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just and you will forgive us of sin. So Father, in this moment, as we wrestle with you in confession and repentance, would you humble us, help us to lay down our sin before you, confident that you mean to heal us and not to harm us. Restore to us, Lord. Restore to us joy, enthusiasm for your word. Restore to us joyful obedience out of all that you've given us in Christ. Father, help our lives to display the goodness of your gospel in everything that we do, in every relationship that we have, in every place that we go, everywhere that we work. Lord, let the gospel be visibly displayed so that a watching world will see us and say, I want that. And that we would be prepared through the doctrine of our lives to share the goodness of who you are and what you've done for us. So Lord, as we come to the table this morning, be glorified as we sing, be glorified as we partake, be glorified as we lift your name. We ask it all in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen.